I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14 is a chapter filled with references to farming. It describes a harvest, but it's evident from the beginning that it's not a harvest of wheat or corn, it's a harvest of people. It's the harvest Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 13 when he was telling the parable about the wheat and the tares. And he said, at the end of the age, I'll send forth my angels to reap the crop. And the wheat, the wheat which represent the sons of the kingdom will go into heaven. The tares representing the sons of Satan will go into the fire. And here we have that harvest portrayed in even more vivid terms. We began to look at it last week and we said there were five aspects to this harvest. The first fruits, the final call, the foretaste, the forecast, and the format. First, we saw the first fruits in verses 1 through 5. And there we see 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, singing a song only they could learn. And these 144,000 are the ones introduced to us in chapter 7. They are the Jewish witnesses of the tribulation period. And here, here we see them at the conclusion of their ministry. They're standing on Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem in heaven, with the Lamb, having completed their ministry. And the end of verse 4 tells us, These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. They are firstfruits of a greater harvest, the firstfruits of, of an immeasurable multitude that will come to Christ during the tribulation from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. These are the first fruits of the harvest. Second, we see the final call, and that's in verses 6 and 7. And here John sees an angel flying in mid-heaven, and he is preaching the gospel to those who dwell on the earth. And here I think we have a further glimpse of the patient mercy of God. Because the 144,000 witnesses have been killed and it's as if God is saying, just in case there's somebody out there who's still listening, I want to give you one more chance. I want to give you one final call. And the call is recorded in verse 7, where the message from the angel is, in, is threefold. Fear God, give him glory, and worship him. And that is called the eternal gospel. You say, well, that doesn't sound like the gospel to me. Well, you know, that was my response initially. But as I looked a little more closely at this verse and meditated upon it, I realized that actually, in essence, this is the gospel. Fear God, give him glory, and worship him really is the whole sum of the message that God has preached to man in every age. That's always been his message to man. Fear God, give him glory, and worship him. Let me illustrate that to you. Take your Bible and look at Isaiah chapter 6. Sixth chapter of Isaiah. Verse 1, Isaiah says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Now, this is a wonderful chapter if you've never read it. Isaiah sees the Lord. He says, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up. And he was sitting on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
The very tail of his robe filled the entire temple. Now, his robe would represent his glory. It would also represent his righteousness. And his righteousness didn't even fit in the temple. Just the tail of his robe filled the temple. That's what Isaiah saw. And he says, on top of the Lord, I saw seraphim. And they were crying out to each other saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as Isaiah viewed this scene, he says that the, the temple began to shake and the temple filled up with smoke. That's what he saw when he saw the Lord. Now notice his response, verse 5. Then, he said, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. His response was that he feared God. He said, I'm a sinner. I don't belong in the presence of God. Woe is me. In other words, I deserve the wrath of God. That was the response of Isaiah. He saw the Lord exalted in his holiness and his righteousness, and he said, I'm a sinner, and I don't belong here. That's fearing God. And until a person comes to that point, they will never be able to see their need for salvation. Every individual must come to that point of fearing God in the sense that I understand God's wrath towards sin. I understand my predicament as a sinner. And I'm just sort of waiting for the wrath of God. That's the way I depict Isaiah here. He's saying, woe is me. Here comes the wrath of God because I'm a sinner and I deserve it. Until I stand before God, seeing myself as a helpless sinner, deserving and anticipating the wrath of God, I'll never appreciate or understand my need for salvation. That's fearing God. But there's a second step in that equation, and that is giving God glory. And in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, A seraphim flew to me with a coal in his hand which he had taken off the altar, and he touched my lips and he said, You're forgiven. Great picture. This angel goes and he gets a coal off the altar. Now the altar was the brazen altar where the sacrifices were given and the blood would fall down off the sacrifices onto those coals. And in essence, the picture is that as the blood of the sacrifice fell, it satisfied the wrath of God. And so he took those, that coal and he touched it to the lips of Isaiah and he said, you're forgiven. Now, if you'll notice... That's all God's doing. God provides the sacrifice. God's judgment is satisfied. The angel takes the coal and he touches Isaiah's lips. And Isaiah doesn't have any part in that. And the message is, you're forgiven. Now who gets the glory for that? God Isaiah feared God, waiting in the presence of God for God's judgment. Instead, he got forgiveness. And all the glory goes to the Lord. Let me tell you something. We've got a lot of messengers around today with a lot of messages telling people what God requires. And if you want a simple test to analyze a messenger and a message, this is it. A lot of people out there proclaiming what they call the gospel today. Here's a test, a simple test that you can give. Any message that gives any man... Any degree of glory isn't the gospel. Any message that gives any man any part or any credit 
or any portion in his salvation isn't the gospel. Because the, the gospel leaves man no room to boast. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of work, lest any man It's all God's doing. It's all God's glory. And those who receive salvation have to say with Paul in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel you know, Ephesians chapter 1, it's an exciting chapter. We went through it recently at 11 o'clock. But in, in Ephesians chapter 1, it catalogs the blessings that we have in the gospel. And it lists them for us. And it says, we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. We've been chosen by God. We've been adopted as sons, redeemed, made holy and blameless. We've been forgiven. We've been given an inheritance. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It lists all these blessings we have as Christians. We get to the end of the blessings, and we're, we're kind of asking why. And why would God give us all this? And the answer is in that, in that first chapter of Ephesians. Three times it says, God did it to the praise of the glory of his grace. Why did he give all that to us? To the praise of his glory. That's what the gospel does. We fear God, anticipating his judgment, and he gives us salvation as a gift, and it all goes to the praise of his glory. You know, oftentimes people ask me the hypothetical or speculative question, if God is omniscient and he knows everything, then that means he knew that we were going to sin, so why would he create man if he knew we were going to sin? Well, the answer is really in Ephesians God created us knowing that we would fall into sin and knowing that he would have to sacrifice his son because Scripture tells us Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. Knowing that he would have to give his son as a sacrifice because he knew it would be of the glory of his grace. And that's all wrapped up in the gospel. All the glory goes to him. You know, if Jesus had never created us and we had never fallen into sin, then the entire universe would not know and understand fully the grace of God. Because God expressed it at Calvary when he sent his son to become a man and to die in our place. And it was a, it was a lesson to, to all of creation of the grace of God. And it brings more glory and more praise and so our response is to fear God. And then as we receive salvation, the result of that is that God is given glory. And then the third step we saw in that equation in Revelation chapter 14 is to worship him. And notice what Isaiah does next, verse 8 of chapter 6. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. What a contrast. Isaiah is bent down saying, I'm a sinner. I deserve the wrath of God. He's anticipating judgment. And the very next moment we, we hear him saying, I volunteer. I'll serve you. You say, well, he must feel pretty adequate in himself. Well, no. Isaiah understood and appreciated the word of God's sacrifice. You see, he came from fearing God to worshiping God in just a moment because he understood that when he was told that he was forgiven, he was forgiven. 
And that made a transformation in his life. He wasn't depending on his own adequacy. He was depending on the adequacy of God's sacrifice. When Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say? He said, it is The writer of Hebrews says that he offered one sacrifice for sin forever. It's paid for. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the Christian who hasn't moved from woe is me to here am I is simply expressing a lack of faith in the Christian life. It's not pride or it's not arrogance or it's not self-adequacy that, that brings me before God volunteering to serve him. It's an understanding and appreciation of what he has done for me. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, it says, We have confidence to enter the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. We have boldness to come before and right into the presence of God in his holy place. But we don't come there in our own adequacy. We come there with the blood of Jesus Christ. God's wrath is satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ, and that allows us to serve him. And so Isaiah says, I deserve judgment, but I've received grace, and now my heart's desire is to serve you. And as he says that, that's worship. Because Romans 12:1 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. When we present our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice, that's worship. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. And that really encompasses what the gospel is. It's fearing God because I have nothing to expect from him but wrath. It's giving him the glory because instead of that, he has given me salvation. And then it's worshiping him. It's giving him the only thing I have to offer back to him, and that is all that I have. That's the gospel message. And it's encompassed in, in Revelation chapter 14, and where it's called the eternal gospel. Come back to Revelation chapter 14. That was a uh, tangent. Uh, that was as much for me as you. I enjoyed that. Uh, the third point in Revelation chapter 14 is the foretaste. And we see that in verse 8. Notice verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now John sees a second angel, and he, this angel is announcing the fall of Babylon. Now, Babylon doesn't exist today. And there's little evidence that it existed in John's day. In fact, if it did exist in John's day, it was little more than a ghost town. But John sees that in the end time, Babylon will once again be great. Now, if you trace the roots of Babylon, you will find that Babylon originated back in Genesis chapter 11. It was a period of time right after the flood. It was a period of time when all people spoke the same language. And in Genesis chapter 11, it describes how all the people of the earth got together and they said, let's build a city with a tower that will reach to heaven. 
and we will make a name for ourselves. And they built what we call the Tower of Babel. And that was the beginning of the city of Babylon. Now, two components are represented in the building of that city. One is man's religion, and the other is man's government. First of all, man's religion. We see them building a tower that reaches to heaven. They're building a stairway to heaven. They're going to get there themselves into heaven. And so they build this huge tower thinking they're going to make it to heaven that way on their own efforts. And secondly, we see man's government because they say, we're going to build this huge city and we're going to make a name for ourselves. Man's government. And of course, if you read Genesis chapter 11, you'll find how God stepped in and confused their language. But these same two components of Babylon will surface again on a universal scale in the tribulation period. Man will come together in a united world religion and man will come together in a united world government. And if you open your eyes today, you can see that we are actively striving toward both of those. We are striving toward, uh, religiously, toward a one world church. I mean, you just, you just uh, look around at the ecumenical movement today. And I have nothing against the sort of objective there, but what I find among the ecumenical movement is a desire for unity at the expense of truth. Let's get together, and so we don't agree on things, let's just put our truth aside and have unity. Well, that's a movement toward a one-world religion, and it's going to evolve and take form during the tribulation period. We're also moving today toward, governmentally, toward a one-world government. Um, some things are happening quickly in our world. We no longer have an Iron Curtain. Uh, that's amazing to be saying that in 1990. We have the two self-proclaimed superpowers holding hands in the Persian Gulf, even as we speak this morning. We have a UN where people can come together and they all have all these headphones on. We all speak the same language so we can communicate about things around the world. Uh, in fact, just this past week we had evidence of this. Did you notice why Britain's Prime Minister Thatcher was forced to step down? Did you notice why? She's the only leader in Europe who opposed the formation of the European Community Monetary Union. And she was going against the flow. Everybody else wants to get together and formulate this union among Europe. You see, she was holding back the revival of the Roman Empire. And her cohorts in Britain said, we can't have that, and so she's out. And whoever comes in is going to cooperate in that agreement to band the, the uh, United Nations of Europe together. It's coming faster than we ever imagined. In fact, some Bible teachers think that the literal city of Babylon will be restored. And there's some debate on that. But if so, that stimulates some interest given our, given our present world situation because if you would go find the ruins of Babylon, you would find that they are situated in the country of Iraq. And they are only, they're sitting only about 30 miles from Baghdad. 
so that kind of raises a little bit of uh, conjecture on what might occur there. Uh, however, the religious aspect of Babylon, which is depicted as a harlot in Revelation chapter 17, is said to have the name Babylon on her forehead, but if you read chapter 17 and verse 5, it says it's a mystery. So her name is Babylon, but it's a mystery. In other words, her name won't really be Babylon, but in reality, that's who she is. So it's a mystery, Babylon. She is really carrying all the, the baggage of Babylon. She is really the, the resurrection, if you like, of Babylon. However, it may imply that that won't actually be her name. And uh, the majority of Bible teachers uh, equate this religious system with the city of Rome. Uh, the character of her religion will be self-effort, man's works, men trying to build a tower to heaven. And of course, as we look around at religions in the world, that is the common denominator today among all false religions. It's always man's achievements and man's works and man trying to work his way to God and man will come together one day to try to accomplish that together. And although her efforts may seem pious, in reality, if you look at Revelation chapter 14 and verse 16, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Ch chapter 14 and verse 8, at the end it says, she, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. What she's really accomplishing is that she's leading the nations into immorality. This may be uh, physical, actual, or it may be spiritual that he's talking about here. It probably is spiritual because she's, she's represented as a whole as the harlot, the one who is unfaithful to God, the false church. And she leads the nations into the same kind of immorality against God, unfaithfulness to him. Her fall is depicted in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 16. We'll eventually get to this, but in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 16, it says, In the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. And we'll go into detail of this when we get to Revelation chapter 17, but, but it, we find in that chapter that uh, this harlot comes riding the beast onto the scene. The picture is that she sort of rides the back of the Antichrist to power in the tribulation period. At the midpoint of the tribulation period, the beast is going to devour her. And that's when he goes into the temple and sets himself up as God. He'll have his own religion. It'll be worshiping him. But for the first half of the tribulation, they'll be united together in this, this uh, common interest. Uh, the Babylon governmentally and, and Babylon... Uh, religiously will be in a, in a cooperative mode during the first half of the tribulation. And then she'll be overthrown at the midpoint. And that's why here in Revelation chapter 14, at the midpoint of the tribulation here in verse 8, we have this angel flying over and he's announcing the fall of Babylon. She has fallen at the midpoint of the tribulation. Then the fourth point we see in chapter 14 is the forecast. And we see it in verses 9 to 13. Two forecasts are given one is negative and one is positive. It's kind of like you've got the saints and the ain'ts. And uh, he talks about the two categories here. First of all, he gives us the negative information. That's the ain'ts uh, in verses 9 to 11. And there he gives us one of the most solemn 
passages of Scripture that you'll find anywhere dealing with judgment. And he says, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark of the beast on his hand or on his forehead, then he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is unmixed in the cup of his anger. And to make that more uh, understandable, he says, he'll be tormented with fire and brimstone day and night forever and ever. An if-then equation. If you worship the beast, if you choose that route, here's the consequences. And he lays them out. Tormented with fire and brimstone day and night forever. That's the negative. And then he gives us the positive in verses 12 and 13. These are the saints. Notice verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. In contrast to those who bow the knee to the beast for temporal considerations, the saints of that day are marked by perseverance, obedience, and faith. And probably like never before in history on this largest scale, their faith is going to be tested because they're going to be ostracized from the society. They won't be able to buy or sell. They're going to be on wanted posters, wanted, dead. Uh, they probably won't be able to gather together and encourage one another during that days. those days. It's going to be 1,260 days of the most intense persecution that believers have ever experienced. And of course, the result will be that they will stay on the run until they're finally put to death. You say, well, what's the forecast for them? Look at verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write. Apparently John was kind of standing there not writing, observing all this. And the message is, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Three phrases in this verse stand out to me. The first is the word blessed. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. They're blessed. Secondly, he says, they rest from their labor. Now, that's in contrast to verse 11, where he says, those who worship the beast will be in torment and they will have no rest day and night. Those who are believers who die at the hands of the beast will rest from their labors. And then the third phrase at the end of verse 13 is, their deeds follow with them. The implication being that there are rewards to come. The things that they have done in service to God will go with them with the rewards that that entails. And so the forecast, as we see here, is rather simple. It's the same forecast Christ gave in Matthew 13. The tares, the sons of Satan, go into the fire. The wheat, the sons of the kingdom, go into heaven. And then the fifth point we see in this chapter is the format, verses 14 to 20. And these verses simply lay out the format of the harvest in two essentially parallel scenes. Verses 14 to 16 depict it from the vantage point of a grain harvest, and verses 17 to 20 depict it from the perspective of a grape harvest. First of all, the grain harvest, verses 14 to 16. Notice verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head, 
and a sharp sickle in his hand. You say, well, who's this? Well, he's like a son of man. Who's that? Well, if you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 13, John says, I saw one amongst the lampstands, and he was like a son of man. And that was Christ. And I take this to be Christ as well. He is like a son of man. That's the same term Jesus chose to describe himself in Matthew chapter 13. He's talking about the wheat and the tares and everything, and he says, and the sower of the good seed is the son of man. Here he is, and we see him. He's sitting on a cloud, which in Scripture is always the way he's going to return. Scripture says he'll return with the clouds of the sky. And here we see him anticipating that as he's already on the clouds and he's already ready to go. It says he's got a crown of gold on his head, which tells us that he is the king that is to come and reign. And he's got a sharp sickle in his hand. He's the harvester, and he's ready for the harvest. And verse 15 tells us, And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. An angel comes out of the temple and says, The hour has come. You say, well, why would an angel be telling Christ when the hour has come? Well, maybe it has to do with something to do with with, uh, Mark 13, 32, where Jesus said, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. And out of the temple where the throne of God is, the Father is, out comes this angel with the message, the hours come. And on that information, verse 16 says, And he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. He reaped the earth. I'd like you to notice a phrase back in verse 15, though. It says, The hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And that word ripe is an interesting word. It's the Greek word exoranthe, and it really means overripe. The, the harvest of the, world, the earth is overripe. And what I like about that is it depicts for us again the patient mercy of God. Because he says... The hour has come because the earth is overdue for judgment. God has watched sin develop and watched it develop, and he's shown patience because of man. And finally, when he finally comes, when the hour finally comes, it's going to be past time for judgment. That's the patience of God. And the earth was reaped. It's not going to take very long when the hour comes. He just swings in his sickle and it's done. It's over. Then he switches pictures for us in verses 17 to 20. gives us a picture of a grape harvest. Verse 17 says, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Now this time the sickle comes out of the temple and it's handled by an angel, which is consistent with what we read in Matthew chapter 13, where it tells us that the reapers are angels. And verse 18 says, And another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because their grapes are ripe. Another angel comes out and he comes out from the altar. Now if you would go back to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, you would find that underneath this altar 
are the souls of the martyrs of the tribulation period. And in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, it says, they're crying out to the Lord to avenge their blood on those who dwell on the earth. Well, this angel comes out from the altar. It's really an answer to their request, if you like, saying it's time for the judgment. And he says the judgment takes place upon the clusters from the vine of the earth. There's another vine in Scripture. John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. And he's the one who bears fruit. And here we have the, the opposite to that, the, the vine of the earth. And it represents man and all that he produces apart from God and apart from Christ. And that's what's going to be judged. And that's the tares. That's what's going to be harvested at this point. And so he comes and he gets those grapes. And then notice what happens to to those. Verse 19, it says, And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now, on that day, the way they processed grapes made wine was that they would take the grapes and they would put them into a wine press and then whoever had the cleanest feet would get up and just stomp on the grapes in their bare feet until they mashed them down and all the juices came out. And that's the picture that God chooses here. He says, I take the, take the grapes from the vine of the earth, all that man is and all that he's produced, and I put it in the wine vat and it's trodden underfoot. And he says, the blood... And, of course, we realize by that that these grapes are not real grapes. They're people. The blood comes out to the horse's bridles for 200 miles. Um, the valley of Megiddo is about 200 miles from the Jordan Valley, and that's where the Battle of Armageddon will be fought. We'll read about it in Revelation chapter 19, and this may be a reference to that period of time when the blood's going to be spread all over the land of Israel. You say, well, who's doing the trampling? Who's trampling the winepress of the wrath of God? Turn over a few pages to Revelation chapter 19. Verse 15. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. And verse 15 says, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations... And he will rule them with a rod of iron, notice. And he, Christ, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And if you just go up your page a little bit to verse 13, it says, And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's not his blood when he comes back. It's the blood of man. He's coming to tread out the winepress of the wrath of God. And he is going to be sprinkled and splattered with the blood of man in judgment. It's quite a picture. You know, as I finish this chapter, and it's not a pleasant chapter to have to go through, it's not a pleasant chapter to have to, to teach, but it's a scary thing to, to take God's word for God's word because then you have to take the truth, and there it is. God is a God of love and compassion and mercy 
He's also a God of justice. And he does and will judge sin. There's no way around that. And we have two pictures in Scripture that stand in stark contrast to each other. In fact, if you just let go of Revelation for a minute and go back again to the book of Isaiah, there are two pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah that are, that are really kind of shocking because they are really in, in, in antithesis to each other. One is Isaiah 53. And we're, we're familiar with that chapter. But in Isaiah 53, uh, speaking about the Lord Jesus, uh, for sake of time, just look at verse 5. It says, But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Isaiah 53 describes the crushing of the Lord Jesus for our sins. But if you'll just turn over a few chapters to Isaiah 63, we have quite a different picture. Isaiah 63, the question is asked, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? The answer is, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and why are your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. And it goes on in detail down through verse Six, where it says, And I trod down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Wow. Two pictures. Both pictures present the Lord Jesus Christ covered with blood. In Isaiah 53, He's the one being crushed as a sacrifice for our sins. In Isaiah 63, He is the one who is doing the crushing in the winepress of the wrath. Of God. You will know and meet the Lord Jesus as one of those two people. And one of those two characters. Either as your sacrifice for sin, the one who was crushed on your behalf, or the one who will come again to crush sin and sinners for a final time. And there's no in between. Those are the two radical pictures of Christ in Scripture. Both times covered with blood. One time he's crushed, the other time he's crushing. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, then I trust that that picture of the Lord Jesus today might drive you to the point of fearing God so that you might give him the glory and worship him because of the salvation that he offers freely to you today. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for this sobering passage of the reality of what you think about sin and what you have promised 
to do about it. And Lord, I pray that it might motivate us, first of all, to worship you because that's the judgment we deserve. But we've been given salvation freely and we give you the glory for that and we worship you today. But secondly, Lord, we pray that it might motivate us to reach out to a lost world around us with the eternal gospel, that salvation is still available today. And Father, while we have such an opportunity that we might use that opportunity to preach the message that we hold so dear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.